0: 90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science.
1: Hey Shannon, how you doing?
0: Hey John, I'm doing pretty good this week. What have you been up to?
1: Oh, not too much. We've been getting quite a bit of snow up here in the Northeast, as people have probably seen, so that's been... Uh, even more things for me to do with my trash can radar gun. So you can probably expect to see something on that soon.
0: I figured when I saw your forecast that you would be super excited about that. Did you get a bigger trash can or anything? I mean, you know, it's going to be a lot of snow. It might cover up your little bitty one.
1: (laughs) No, I didn't get a bigger trash can, but I did have to keep uh, dusting it off because I was getting quite a buildup on top of it.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Well, I won't mention or maybe I will mention that it's going to be 70 degrees the first part of this week here in Oklahoma, so sorry about that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we've been below freezing for quite a while here. (laughs) So uh, what about you? What have you been doing this week?
0: Uh, Well, the main thing that at the first of the week on Monday, I was trying not to freak out because I don't know if you know, but we had a near-Earth encounter with an asteroid. Really? Uh, Yeah. It was asteroid 2004 BL86 on Monday. It came super close to Earth, only 3.1 lunar distances so I was trying not to panic because, as you know, you know it's not an exact science. So I'm hoping <laughs> that they had everything calculated correctly. Uh, but this presents a super awesome opportunity, and we can see it on the radars that we use to look for near Earth objects.
1: Wow, that's uh, that's really neat. So that's what about a million miles away?
0: Yep, that's it. And it was—it's the size of two football stadiums, large football stadiums. So it's quite a big wow. asteroid that's coming pretty close to Earth, and. So earlier this week, everyone was watching it. Really close pass. Super cool opportunity for the Near Earth Observatory radar.
1: Great, and I'm sure that uh, there's going to be a lot of neat pictures coming out of that. Oh,
0: I imagine. Comets and asteroids are kind of in vogue at this time of year, aren't they?
1: <laughs> they are. So uh, what else have you been up to?
0: Well, the big thing I've been up to is trying to plan our first field trip for the field methods class that I teach. So I take geologists and meteorologists and try to teach them how to do what we do in the field. And this Saturday is our first field trip.
1: Oh, so where are you going?
0: Uh, We're going to go to the Arbuckle Mountains. So it's this very ancient mountain range in southern Oklahoma. And we're going to work on some very basic skills because the semester just started. So everyone's just figuring out how to do this stuff, but what I wanted to try to do with them is determine whether we should go old school and use just regular field notebooks and tape measures, or if I should try to incorporate some technology and maybe use iPads in the field.
1: Yeah, that's, I think, a question that a lot of people are asking. So I think we should just talk about field gear today.
0: I think that's a good idea. We should certainly do that. Um, Some things, since we were talking about your snowpocalypse up there again (laughs) um, this weekend, I didn't even anticipate this until I looked at the forecast this morning, but it's supposed to rain. I don't know if we can use our iPads in the rain, (laughs) at least with the cases that we have on them. So.
1: yeah, and field mapping in the rain has always been kind of a, a rite of passage. Oh, it absolutely sort of it, ab- <laughs>
0: it absolutely is. Like the rain is not what's going to stop us, but it might stop us from using the technology that I had planned, which sort of is an interesting question that I hadn't planned for. I just assumed we'd go out with this technology and use it, but I don't feel like paying for twenty iPads. So,
1: <laughs> right. Well, before we get down the road to iPads and everything, let's rewind it a little bit and let's just talk about some basic field gear.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's true. you got to have something to put all your stuff into before you even get out into the field, right? So.
1: Right. So, I mean, field packs are one thing that... I know lots of people talk about, and most geologists, myself included, uh, or geophysicists even, owns <laughs> multiple packs because we've tried so many different things to get the ideal field pack.
0: Oh, uh, it's so true. And you like to think that maybe, you know, all this tech gear that we're going to talk about and all this technology stuff, but the low-tech stuff, there are just as many options out there and just as much stuff to talk about when it comes to low-tech uses, especially in the field that we have every day. There's so many choices now.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've seen people in the field with everything from Backpacks to fanny packs to, you know, all kinds of really weird things to carry their stuff in.
0: Uh Yeah, it's still okay in geology to carry a fanny pack. <laughs> um, yeah, That's sort of really the first thing that you have to decide, too, because a backpack doesn't really do it for a field geologist. A lot of the times, you know, you have a certain amount of time to map over a certain area, and you can't constantly be getting a backpack on and off your back to get all the tools you need out, so hence the fanny pack is super popular. I sort of have a hybrid fanny pack. I'll call it that because (laughs) what it is is a bag that just goes on a regular old belt and you can just put all your equipment into the bag. So kind of a fanny pack, not the traditional hook to a belt fanny pack. But I also carry a backpack too because usually you need a lot of water.
1: Right. You need water and lunch and camera and Whatever else you want to carry right, exactly. Around. And I know Rain that, gear.
0: yeah, uh, yes, a raincoat for sure, because we're not going inside. We're gonna keep on mapping. <laughs> um, but I know when I've dragged you out into the field with me, you have a really different sort of field pack. Do you want to describe that?
1: I do, and so I'll put a link uh, to this in the show notes, of course. But this was originally made for things like SWAT teams and police and law enforcement. <laughs> uh,
0: That's what you call attacking the outcrop.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> It straps to your leg, so it has a a belt uh, that goes around your waist, and then it straps to your leg and kind of goes down the side. It's sort of like uh, strapping cargo pockets onto the side of your leg, (laughs) and it just so happens that the pocket, the big pocket, is the perfect size for a field book, and it's got a little upper pocket that you can put your pens and pencils and ruler in, and it's always worked really well for me, except for one little aspect.
0: Which is... (laughs) (laughs) Which is, it
1: was made for things like SWAT teams, so it looks like you're a member of something like a SWAT team. And there have been a couple instances where from a distance people have thought that you were carrying some kind of a weapon in the field. Um,
0: I could see where that would be a problem. So not just a hammer weapon, but actually have a gun strapped to your leg. That could be a problem because as we talked about on our first show... There's a lot of issues with landowners and getting access onto these public lands, and you certainly don't want to look like you're carrying a weapon out there, too. So,
1: Right. So I really love it, and it's a great thing, but you just have to be a, a little bit careful. And <laughs> if they see you with that in a backpack and, you know, a big floppy field hat, then maybe it lessens the effect. Yeah, that
0: is true. But if you get some of those weird geophysics instruments out there, it might add to the threatening demeanor from afar, so...
1: Right. That's, that's true. But, uh, yeah, and so you mentioned hammers, actually, and that's, that's kind of a point of friction for me. So h- how do you manage your hammer in the field?
0: <laughs> Speaking of weapons, right? Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> so the hammer, it's the first thing that geologists go to, right? And this is something I have to teach in my field class, too, because either students are too scared to actually go and hammer a rock or they want to hammer on everything. <laughs> and and so I've read is that hammering on everything is the sure sign of a novice. So you want to keep your hammer away until you need it. Um, I really low tech on this. I have a holster and I just don't like it. It just doesn't, it doesn't. Lend for getting your hammer out very easily because it slides around on my belt. The hammer gets stuck in it, so I really I have this old webbing belt like from an army surplus store, and I just stick it in between my belt and my pants. You know, <laughs>
1: that's uh, that's pretty much what I've done too. I've got kind of a stretchy webbing belt that I got from Eddie Bauer years ago, mm-hmm. and that's that's what I use it for. It's my field belt. Uh, I do have actually my dad's leather hammer holster from the 60s when he was doing geology field work, but I have the same issue with it it, it slides around so I, I just haven't come up with a good solution I
0: haven't either and I don't like the ones that hook I mean I guess I like them better the ones that actually have a have a stretchy piece of leather that goes over the top and snaps in but I still feel like when I want the hammer I want it right then and just sticking it in the belt in the very back it's out of the way and yet still super easily accessible. So that's super low tech, and I like it that way. (laughs) Yeah, I mean,
1: maybe a stretchy belt is the quick draw holster for hammers. (laughs) That's
0: right. Yeah, that's right. I absolutely agree. And I know a lot of geologists actually, I'm going to try this myself too, is they wind up using their hammer as a ruler in the field. So you just make little marks on your hammer, so you have sort of your 12 inches, or if you want to do metric, you could do metric as well. (laughs) marked out on your hammer, so you're really going to need it a whole lot, a lot more than dragging it in and out of a holster, I think, so.
1: Now, how are you going to mark that on your hammer? Are you going to just use, uh, like, a permanent marker? Are you going to engrave it with a Dremel tool, or kind of what's the plan there?
0: Well, some hammers have super long metal necks, and so I think the Dremel is the way to go if you have a hammer with kind of a longer metal neck. They kind of come in two or three different sizes, so that's the way to go because I've tried Sharpie before and it just doesn't hold up. That's what I have now. And I just wind up using the Sharpie over and over again before I go out because I love Sharpies, but we'll discuss that coming up. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So for now, that's my best bet. Um, Yeah.
1: I guess the kind of the last question on hammers though, is do you like the, uh, the chisel tip or the ones that go to a point?
0: (laughs) how long is this podcast? Um. (laughs) (laughs) So I have both and they both serve different uses, right? Um, Right. So if I'm going out to look at sedimentary rocks, I always take the chisel point because it's really good for digging. Um, Mm -hmm. There's nothing I love more than sitting on the side of the road next to a shale outcrop and digging with my chisel point (laughs) hammer as I think you've drugged me away for them before. So you understand my love of that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I have. (laughs) Um, But then, you know, sometimes you've got to pry a lot of stuff, and the pointy hammer works better for that. (laughs) That's what I, you know, pointy hammer. Um, It works better for that, and in harder rock situations to try to, um, if you're taking samples or anything like that, I like to use that. It gets a cleaner line, and you can dig out more. Igneous and just harder sedimentary rocks with that, so it really depends on where I'm going. Generally, I have both in my car. I'm not gonna lie, but
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, one thing that I've found really useful that I, I've carried in the field and I've actually loaned these to other people because they loved them. I went to Lowe's and bought just a chisel set with the hand guards ah. like you would use in a metal shop, mm-hmm. and then one of the small sledges. And if you're doing hard rock work, taking those chisels out with that sledge and just going to town on it really does the trick. Oh,
0: that's absolutely true. Um, we went on a field trip in an igneous class, and I took a three pound sledge, and that was great. So I imagine if I ever had to sample igneous rocks, that, that is totally the way to go. You got to find somewhere to put all those chisels that you're walking around with but
1: it, it does pose a problem to the uh, the belt yes yes method. it
0: does <laughs> nothing to hook on there and the three pound sledge is it doesn't quite hook into the stretchy belt like no. like the regular hammers do so mm-hmm. i had to throw that in my backpack so i didn't use it as much which is something i hadn't anticipated when we went out and did it but hmm
1: So let's see, what else is going to be in our field bags that we should discuss? Well,
0: that's funny because you're a hilarious but super useful SWAT team holster. (laughs) I always (laughs) thought that it was actually built for geologists because it fits your notebook so well. I was really (laughs) surprised when you told me that it actually wasn't meant for a geologist. But somewhere to stick all your stuff is super important besides just the bag, but the thing you're going to use all the time. So like your map or your notebook. What do you do with that?
1: Well, I haven't got the ideal solution here, but I have one of those clipboards that, you know, you can open the top, and it's got a storage compartment inside behind the clipboard. And I figured, you know, well, if this geology thing doesn't work out, I can always moonlight as a repairman (laughs) with this at least. That's
0: so true. That's totally where you see those all the time. So is it plastic or is it metal? Because I've seen repairmen with both.
1: (laughs) It is metal. It is actually a full-on... Uh, very ruggedized metal clipboard. It still has a few dents in it, but...
0: <laughs> well, if it didn't have dents in it, I'd just make fun of you, right? Because you've got to have some, you know, some wear in your field gear. You don't want to look like a geophysicist or anything.
1: Right. <laughs> I, I I will caution you, though. I advise against buying the black one.
0: Because you lose it?
1: No, because it gets very hot.
0: Ah, So now that's the downfall of metal because I've never actually used one of those. So what, I guess it depends on what you're going out there for, but for mapping in the field, like that clipboard is good, but it doesn't necessarily give you a big surface. And so what we traditionally used were map boards. And so we took just, you know, heavier than fiber board and made maybe 17 to 20 inches across and then just, They're like using a regular clipboard, but they're bigger. And you duct tape them together. And on the bottom, you've got this clipboard material. And then you duct tape a piece of Lexan, or plexiglass, on top of it. And the duct tape serves as a hinge, right? And so you put your map underneath that. And then you just walk around with this sort of large alligator thing. Hmm. So (laughs) then you have this big area to map on. Um, It's really big. And that's that's the problem. But... If you're doing a really big area, you don't have to keep readjusting your map and worrying about stuff getting on it when you're climbing around, so...
1: And I could think that that cover is also really useful because when I have just my map on the front of this clipboard and carry it around all day, kind of where your you know, your palm rests on the clipboard as you're carrying it, it really does a number on the map.
0: Oh, yeah, exactly, because it's not like we're out there washing our hands all the time either, right? So <laughs> now right. you've got this topo map, and you've got your sweaty hand on it all day, and now you've you know, entirely abru- obliterated an entire mountain range because you've <laughs> rubbed it off of your topo <laughs> with your sweat and, you know, field grime. So I really like the Lexan cover a lot. It takes a little bit of time when you have to open it up to do some mapping, but it's really great because you can still orient and everything without opening it up, right? You know, you can see through the Lexan, hopefully, if right. it's not too worn out. But that's sort of my favorite setup for now. I'm going to try this summer, I'm going to try that setup, but with a smaller clipboard. So it's just two clipboards stuck taped together. And we'll see how that works.
1: Yeah, we'll be anxious to hear how that turns out for you.
0: I'm sure we'll talk all about it.
1: (laughs) I'm sure we will. So let's see, uh, where do you want to go next here?
0: Well, before you get all your stuff ready, I mean, you got to get dressed, right? Uh, Maybe some geologists don't, but (laughs) 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 those thorns out there in the undergrowth are not good unless you were actually dressed for the field. And we could talk all day about it, but I think this is sort of one of those things where technology has made a huge difference in how people going out in the field, this isn't just geologists, but field biologists or ecologists or anything, like clothing technology is a huge thing for us, right?
1: Yeah, and this is something that I'm interested to hear you talk about because I don't spend nearly as much time in the field as you do. And my field clothing has traditionally been... Very plain, like Walmart cargo pants and (laughs) uh, like chambray shirts. I haven't really got into the technology side of clothing, so I'm I'm curious to hear about
0: this. (laughs) So now that always works too, right? Like that will work every day. But um, the tech in clothing, really the big thing for me as a paleomagnetist, was the quick dry pants.
1: Because of paleomagnetism,
0: (laughs) what we do is we go out in the field and we have to take little samples using this modified chainsaw. So we get these little one-inch cores using a modified chainsaw. But as you can imagine, you have to cool that core bit with water, right? You can't just go drilling into a rock and not have anything to cool it off with.
1: Yeah, and it takes a lot of water, let me tell you, because uh, I have carried that water up hills when you were drilling cores before.
0: That is true. I've made John be my field assistant on many occasions, and we (laughs) have to drag a lot of water. But the cool thing about the quick-dry pants is before this, so you'd go out and then you carry all this water, you schlep it to where you're going, and you're sweaty, and then you need to put on a rain suit so you don't get all this drilling fluid all over you, and then you're wet the rest of the day, because you're wearing jeans, or you're wearing, you know, Dickie's cargo pants, or something like that, because it's just not comfortable, and, you know, it could be dangerous if it's cold outside, right? Right,
1: and you put that big plastic suit on, I mean, it looks like the Gordon's Fisherman is out there (laughs) drilling in your (laughs) outcrop. Yes,
0: that's absolutely true, and I have very many pictures of that exact thing right there, but the problem with the rain suits is that you're going to sweat anyway once you're in them, so you've got this rain suit on, and you're working really hard because you're trying to drill rock (laughs) and so you sweat on the inside of it anyway and then the rain suit just keeps the sweat in but quick dry pants man they're the best so you just go out there you drill yeah you're wet but 10 minutes later whether it's cold or warm or whatever it's really the best when it's warm and windy your pants are dry and you just move on so that's been a huge thing for me because now i don't have to carry these huge bulky rain suits And it's just a lot more comfortable. And then I can carry more water. (laughs) Right. But one of the drawbacks is, well, you said it before, it's pretty drab, right? Right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I know that the coloring of the clothing actually can sometimes be a safety concern in the field. (laughs)
0: Yeah, it certainly can. Um, A lot of times we drill on the side of the road, like on road cuts, right? So you don't want to blend into the road cut and have a car whip around the corner. And then, you know, that's it. You're never going to be sampling again. So, you know, we wear wear safety vests and things like this. But more comically, um, I've lost my advisor in the field on many occasions (laughs) (laughs) because he chooses to wear... He chooses to wear the exact color of the rocks no matter where we are. So he's in these draft (laughs) tans and greens, and he blends right in. And sometimes I think he does it on purpose.
1: Well, you know, you've got to keep an eye on your students.
0: I think that's the case. Um, I brought this up for our field camp that we teach, and I said maybe we should get some bright colors, you know, for safety so students can see us. And the ubiquitous complaint was, but then we can't sneak up on them.
1: (laughs) i i know uh when we do some field work around here uh, for example i've gone out and put some instruments out in the woods uh, even recently and we have to wear hunter's vests uh, because it is hunting season around and we actually had to do that on every day except sundays because of some weird pennsylvania laws where you can't uh, hunt on sunday here
0: <laughs> okay so no hunting on sundays <laughs> um, just like you can't buy a car here on Sundays. That's interesting. Right. Uh, I think it's always a good idea. You and I have been sampling in many places where having Hunter Orange safety on is an exceptional idea. I I sort of think it should be done. At least a lot of people at your party should have it, I think.
1: I, I really agree with that. And I think that if you can, you should have those vests Uh, custom made it's not that expensive to have what you are on the back you know geology survey or school of whatever something so people know that you're not an official you're you're not a policeman you're not a fireman you're anything like that because sometimes if you're on the side of the road and vests like that you get people that are rubbernecking or come by and ask you questions thinking you're some kind of official
0: Uh, right exactly because you don't want to be you know hit on the side of the road when you're working on the side of the road, but you certainly don't want cars stopping either just to see if you're in trouble or anything like that. So if they see geology or, you know, geology department, hopefully they'll just keep on moving. And if they want to ask you a question, fine, but they can do it, you know, in a safer way than just slamming on the brakes, right? Because you've got orange on and maybe something's wrong.
1: Right. Absolutely. So do you have anything else that you want to Add for field clothing? Oh, anything about man. hats? or
0: <laughs> <laughs> I could talk about clothes forever. And I'm sort of, and I would love to hear suggestions from anyone, especially in terms of field hats. Um, I'm right now trying to decide what I like best in the field in terms of hats. But where could we have our listeners drop us a line and tell us what they like?
1: Well, you can just email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. And you can either send us text or send us an audio comment recorded on your phone. Or you can always get a hold of us on Twitter, at Don't Panic Geo, or Facebook.
0: Awesome. So I really want to hear from people. Let us know what you think, because I'm up in the air. I've generally always just worn a baseball cap. But for any extended amount of field work, you really need something to cover up your ears. Um, I have gotten some really bad sunburns on my ears. So, (laughs) I mean, I'm thinking about cowboy hat. I'm just, I'm really not all in on the hat yet.
1: You know, I've really gone with kind of the, the floppy canvas hat that covers your ears a little bit anyway.
0: Right. Right.
1: Uh, but maybe, maybe we should all be wearing fedoras in the
0: field. Um, I would love that. I would love that a lot. <laughs> or, <laughs> as I recently found out when I was reading this book about the history of geology, it was that traditionally in the UK in the 17 and 1800s, there would be geologists that would go out in full academic regalia.
1: That sounds <laughs> uncomfortable. <laughs>
0: I believe it lends a certain gravity to the situation, though. Um, also, top hats were a very common field attire right. historically. <laughs> so maybe instead of a fedora, top hats is what we should bring back.
1: Maybe. So the <laughs> last the last thing I want to say about field clothing, because we don't want to go on forever. We don't want a, a really long show. Uh, sunglasses.
0: Oh, absolutely. All the way. As most... I I get expensive sunglasses. I know we're going to talk about how expensive you should buy stuff because you don't want to lose it in the field, but because I do drilling, I get expensive sunglasses, so they're not going to break very easily. They protect your eyes and always polarized. Always, always, always.
1: Absolutely. Always polarized. And do be careful if you are describing an outcrop or a rock depending on the tint of your lens, it can significantly change whether you think that is a mustard yellow rock or not.
0: That is absolutely true. Um, As I tell my class, though, you know, you need to put yourself into hand lens mode. So you need to get right down on the rock and you can't look at a rock through your sunglasses. So that should never be a problem. But as we know, it probably is, especially if you're looking at something far away.
1: Absolutely. So, all right, that's, I think, should probably wrap up field clothing (laughs) for us.
0: Yeah, we could keep going on and on about it forever, but probably more important than what kind of clothing is, where are you going to put your data?
1: Right, and this is a topic that I think will probably spark some debate.
0: (laughs) I hope so, because as in my field class right now, there's already been some debate about what you should use, so...
1: So, Shannon, when you're in the field and you're try- going to write down a sketch or some observations, what do you write in?
0: Well, I just have, for a long time, I just used whatever our university bookstore sold. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, maybe these Sokia field books are, were a good thing. They had a lot of those. Um, I also just, you know, the cheap forestry supply field books is what I use. Um, I don't do a lot of, the gridded graph paper but i like sort of the larger grids um i feel like if i'm going to do a sketch it's usually sort of a a large scale kind of thing so gridded paper that's the big deal but i haven't got on board with right in the rain field books yet
1: that's surprising because that's what i use i every time i'm in the field i carry a right in the rain book with me whether it's the big one or kind of the little memo pad size flip one that one
0: too Uh yeah
1: so what don't you like
0: about this? <laughs> well, as I told my class, so right in the rain. We just said writing in the rain is a part of, uh, write a passage, pun right. intended, <laughs> in fieldwork. But the pages are coded because they're supposed to be waterproof. And I feel like if you're doing geology in pen, you're just not doing geology right. <laughs> <laughs> like You can never be that certain to write something in your field book with a pen I'm a, I'm a big proponent of this. So this is sort of why I don't like the Write in the Rain field book. But um, it is geology-specific, which has advantages and drawbacks.
1: Right, and I feel like you can write pretty well on those pages, though. With a pencil, you just can't erase so well.
0: Well, so it's the same thing. If you're using a pencil that can't erase, you're also not <laughs> doing geology, right? Oh, Fair enough. <laughs> which, I mean, you know, you're a geophysicist by training, so... I understand that, but.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we we do do a lot of sketches and things, but for a lot of the fieldwork that I've done, it's been recording readings from a gravimeter, recording readings from a magnetometer, that really, once I write them down, I kind of do want it in pen.
0: Right, and actually, that is the same thing for paleomag, as you know, since you've helped me in the field in numerous times, is that we we record declination and inclinations of each core that we drill, and so that's something that you never want to lose, because if you lose that data... I mean, there's no way to get it back, because once you've taken the rock out, you can't recreate that exact declination and inclination, and every, you want to minimize error, and this is in all field work from the very beginning, right?
1: Right, and you know, the Little Right in the Rain books, I've even drugged those through caves, where we were doing some new techniques for cave mapping, and I know they were fully submerged.
0: Wow, really? a
1: while with my pen in it, you know, with my uh, writing and pen. And I still had my notes.
0: Uh, well, maybe I can be convinced. We'll see this weekend. Hopefully it'll rain. And I'll try out my little freebie right in the rain notebook. And we can talk about it next week, see what I think about it.
1: I, I think this might be the only time I've heard a geologist say <laughs> they're going to the field and they hope it will rain.
0: <laughs> oh, it's so true. <laughs> well, you got to try out the technology somehow. Um Before we move on, though, the things in the back of the notebooks, really quickly, Mm -hmm. what do you ever use? What do you want to see in the back of your notebook?
1: Generally a blank cover because I (laughs) will need the space. (laughs) Uh.
0: So that's sort of how I feel, too. Um, But these right-in-the-rain notebooks are really specific to disciplines. So you can buy engineering right in the rain, or you can buy geology right in the rain. And being a professor... The geology right in the rain, we've already run into it before. The terminology they use for rock naming isn't necessarily what I've taught in class. Mm -hmm. And so students will rely on the stuff in the back as opposed to things they've already learned. And that's a problem for me because I feel like they believe that this right in the rain book is smarter than they are.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That could be a problem. I can see that.
0: Yeah, exactly. So despite warning them, they still use these words that they have no idea what they are because they're in the back of the field book, and so they're (laughs) taking it as gospel. And we'll see how that works after this weekend as well.
1: Yeah. Now, one thing that is in the back of one of the notebooks I got, I don't remember which edition, that I did like was it had a plastic scale to put in your photographs that had a couple different measurements on it, and it was a really good color reference uh, for balancing your photos.
0: Absolutely. And that's in the right in the Rain Geology Notebook. Um, you can get those scales anywhere, though. And if you're a crafty dork like I am, <laughs> this is where you can really let your um, personality shine through because I have one of those scales, but what I've done is I've taken... Um, a hole punch punched a hole in it and then I attach it to my map board or my clipboard and I attach it with you know just some kind of cool attachment device just either a rubber band or you know you can make your own fabric lanyards and attach it and use that as well so
1: Yeah, I've seen people tie all kinds of crazy stuff onto their notebooks with everything (laughs) duct tape and string and rubber bands and staple guns.
0: Yeah, we're like big ravens walking around in the field. Ooh, shiny! (laughs) 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 With all these different, you know, accoutrements of fieldwork hanging off of us. Yes, that's absolutely true. And speaking of, how are you going to attach your pencil to your notebook? How are you going to keep your pencil? That's a big deal. I don't. Because...
1: (laughs) because I like to be able to use it on this, or maybe I have another notebook that I'm jotting something down in. I I don't like having it attached to the notebook strictly.
0: Wow, that's interesting. So you put it in your pocket protector, right?
1: (laughs) Right. As a geophysicist, (laughs) I do have my required pocket protector.
0: (laughs) I wish you were kidding, but I know you're not.
1: (laughs) I'm not, and I I actually have one that's made out of clear plastic instead of white. It's called (laughs) the Stealth.
0: Just in case no one knew that you were a nerd, you might go undetected. <laughs> but since you have a radar gun in a trash can, I'm guessing that's not going to help you.
1: <laughs> right. But no, I've always kept them either in a shirt pocket or in a pocket on that uh, leg device that we talked about okay. earlier. Okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That would work too. Yeah. Because I always like to have mine, you know, really close to my notebook. And invariably, no matter what sort of device I have, so either rubber banding it to the actual notebook or having an actual um, an actual notebook closing device that's sort of like elastic that has a loop on it for your pen. So I can have all of those things, but it always winds up clipped to my clipboard, no matter what. So I have to have a pencil that has a really good uh, pocket clip because I always wind up clipping it to my clipboard.
1: Okay, so if you're looking for... Good pocket clips and pencils. <laughs> what pencil do you use?
0: Um, so my favorite is just this old-school Pentec, and it's got sort of a rubber, rubberized grip on it and the clicker to advance the lead, because clearly it's a uh, mechanical pencil, um, is down on the barrel. So if it hits, it's not going to be... Hits on the end. It's not going to be advancing the pencil lead. And it's 0.5 or less because... You need something small, I feel like. You don't want to have too big a mark, because if you're mapping on a really large-scale topo map, one pencil strike could be, you know, tens of feet across. So you need something small-scale. I love the Pentech. I'm lamenting the loss of the Zebra 301 Ultra. <laughs> 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 so that might certainly... Um, describe what a dork i am when it comes to pens um i've looked for this mechanical pencil for years the three they still have the zebra 301 but the grip is not rubberized the 301 ultra has a rubberized grip and i think i could get it in the uk so i'm gonna have to go back over there and go to a store and buy a pencil
1: (laughs) a little bit of the backstory here shannon has been looking for the 301 ultra almost (laughs) since i've known her (laughs)
0: It is true. So I had one, and what happened was the, the little clippy thing broke that hooked, it to my, that hooked it to my clipboard. So it's been a sad loss for me that I clearly can't get over, because we've known each other for quite some time.
1: We have. So I, I want to rewind a little bit to a comment that you made about lead size. All right. And you use, I, that was 0.5 millimeter, right? Correct, correct. Okay, so have you used anything finer before?
0: Um, I have on final drafts, but I think it's a sort of a, it's a balance because if you take anything 0.3 or something like that out in the field, I feel like I waste a lot of it. I don't know how you feel about this.
1: Yeah, no, I've got uh, I've got my 0.3 millimeter pencil here actually, or one of them, and the tip on it, because I took it in the field, is slightly more J-shaped than it should be. <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah, rocks don't forgive.
1: <laughs> no. So point 0.3, I think, is a little bit fine for going in the field. I have used point 0.7 in the field, though, without too much uh, too much problem. And when I'm just recording numerical data, like if I'm recording strike and dips, I have even used point 0.9. Uh,
0: yeah, I've had people use point 0.9 before as well. And um, the professor I learned field techniques from, he always used point 0.9 because he said he was really heavy-handed. I think you just have to be very precise at where you're taking the measurements. And I think it makes, you have to be a little bit more aware if you're gonna use a big pencil of exactly where you took your, your measurement. And I mean, GPS and tools like that make this a little less of an issue than it probably was back in the day.
1: Right, and uh, I guess real quick, the only other pencil that I really like is the Palomino Blackwing 602. Have have, you ever used one of these?
0: I have not, but I am very intrigued. Tell me about why I want it.
1: It's not a mechanical pencil.
0: Okay. It doesn't
1: run out of lead in the field. It doesn't jam. It makes a really nice dark mark.
0: But do you have to keep sharpening it? So. Yes. Okay. Which, you know... I mean, there's a lot of different things you could say about sharpening, right? So either you're going to lose a pencil sharpener, but you should have a knife with you anyway. So in a jam, you could always do that, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. But once again, we could talk about pencils forever.
0: (laughs) Yes, we could. That's for sure. Um, Let me just briefly mention, I know we're probably boring everyone, but probably not, since if you're a geologist, you like to talk about field things. I think there's really no no controversy about which compasses are the best, right? So every geologist has a Brunton, right?
1: Every geologist has a Brunton. Every geologist has a hand lens, mm-hmm. and it can be everything from a cheapie to some of these new ones that have LEDs and all kinds of crazy stuff in them.
0: Not only LED, but LED and UV. So if you're an igneous person and you're going out into the field or metamorphic, that UV is awesome. And they're super cheap now. I think they used to be pretty expensive, but I got mine because of course it has LED and UV for like 20 bucks. So.
1: Yeah. So if you don't have at least one hand lens, maybe two in case you lose one while you're out there, uh you need to rethink your field kit just uh, a bit. Yes.
0: Absolutely cuz those are just period you have to have this no other thoughts about that. But
1: Right. So now we should get at kind of the heart of what started this whole conversation. <laughs> and that is What do we think about iPads versus topo maps and GPSs and all of this technology? And I guess we can maybe make some initial predictions and then talk about how your field experiment turns out.
0: Right. I think that's the best way to go. This whole semester, um, I'm teaching class in what we have here is a technology-enhanced classroom, and so we have access to these iPads. They don't necessarily have you know, otter boxes or anything like that on them, Um, but we're going to do a lot of technology versus just paper map things so i mean the first thing you think about is taking an ipad in the field well i didn't think about it going to be raining that's going to be a problem
1: (laughs) that's a problem and i've taken one in the field before and tried to type my gravimeter readings directly into a spreadsheet and that glass panel on the front does a really good job of letting the internals of the ipad heat up in sunlight and it actually overheated and shut down on me
0: oh you're kidding no. <laughs> okay, so something else I haven't thought about.
1: <laughs> so you want to keep the screen shaded for sure.
0: Uh yeah, and you just can't always go out and expect perfect weather, you know, like it's going to be cloudy and 75 degrees, right? So Yeah. You know, but your your notebook doesn't care really, especially if you have a write in the rain, I guess. <laughs> your notebook doesn't care what the weather is.
1: And it it never runs out of batteries.
0: Uh, It sure doesn't. (laughs) Um, I think for maybe short trips, which I'm going to experiment both ways. We go on short half-day field trips, and we go on a longer five-day field trip. So I'm going to experiment both ways on that, and we can talk about what happens this weekend next week.
1: Yeah, and, I mean, you've got to wonder, does this take too much Away from basic skill development by just automatically giving students iPads the first time they go out.
0: Right, exactly. Um, a lot of technology is being pushed in higher education because we think that the students that are just starting school, you know, they're these tech natives, and this is how they operate now. But just some informal polling, I have a lot of students that say they just want to, they just want to take a piece of paper out in the field. So it's sort of counterintuitive to what a lot of people are pushing today.
1: Yeah, and even though if it's a school-owned iPad or if it's my personal iPad, depending on where I was going in the field, I might be a little uneasy taking something that cost me $1,000.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's well, if it's a school-owned iPad, you probably feel less uneasy. But, yeah, <laughs> you're absolutely right. And there is always the caveat of safety, and you need to know – how to look at a topo map and navigate it. The bonus is if you have this iPad, you've got a thousand topo maps of all different scales right at your fingertips. And you can't, you can't take them any maps out with you. So that's a pretty good deal.
1: Yeah, it is. And I mean, I've gone both ways in the field and I really like having the iPad there with me, but I don't think that I would only have the iPad because what if something happened to it and I still needed a map?
0: Right, exactly. Um, I think we're going to explore this this semester when my class deals with these issues. You know, um, I haven't ever taken an iPad out. I know that I've gotten my laptop out on several occasions, though, but I always have to wait, you know, until you get back to the car and pull it out. So maybe having an iPad is good. We'll we'll find out.
1: Yeah, we'll see what you find out. So I guess that brings us to the final segment, everybody's <laughs> favorite segment of the show. <laughs> That Fun is Fun Paper, Paper Friday.
0: Friday, Yes, it's always exciting to do Fun Paper Friday. What do we got on the docket today?
1: Today we have a Nature Communications article that just came out, and it is called Aerosol Generation by Raindrop Impact on Soil.
0: <gasps> okay, so looking at that, what rain smells like? Is that what we're talking about?
1: That is what we're talking about. Awesome. So everybody knows there's this smell after rain on hot days. Yes. And did you know that that had a term?
0: Uh, I didn't until I read this paper. Petrichor, is that what it is?
1: Apparently, it's petrichor is the name for that earthy smell.
0: That's awesome. Um, so my favorite thing about this is, you know, people always talk about fresh, cleansing rains, and rain is helping clean stuff, but the smell of rain is really just dirty. It's dirty water, right? <laughs>
1: Yeah, and so what these people did is they actually just dropped water onto a porous surface, and they did all kinds of different porous surfaces, uh, but, you know, like soil. And it turns out when the raindrop hits, it traps some air, and that air forms bubbles that go up through the drop, and when they hit the surface, they make these jets that spew all these aerosols out.
0: Okay, so we've always known, you know, that rain traps air that it's traveling down through because that's how we get acid rain, right? We've got CO2 in the atmosphere and water mixes with CO2 and now you've got acid rain that disintegrates our limestone buildings and does all kinds of other stuff. But so this happens at the surface too then, right? Is that what we're saying here?
1: Yeah, this sort of happens at the surface and what what they found that was really interesting is you had to have kind of a special set of conditions. If the material was... Uh, too hydraulically conductive well then the water just flowed in you didn't have time to trap all these air bubbles and if it was too non-conductive you got this kind of radial jet splattering effect but if you were in a sweet spot you actually got these things called frenetic jets that would shoot up these kind of 10 micron sized particles
0: wow okay so there's a perfect place to smell rain then
1: there's a perfect material to smell rain falling on apparently and one of the more interesting kind of things was okay. This maybe explains this petrichor, but it also could do things like spread viruses and bacteria.
0: Really well. I guess if you're just aerosolizing all this stuff, you're picking up. I mean, do they have any idea of what that could mean then?
1: And not yet. They did a little bit of work on uh, you know putting different wind uh, velocities over the surface as they were doing these impacts. And they did see some transportation, but it's kind of unclear how that transportation works work in the real world because the real world, there's many drops falling, and raindrops are also one of the leading ways that aerosols and things are pulled out of the air.
0: Right, because as they travel down through the air, I think this is where sort of the cleansing thing, right? You trap all this pollution and everything. You get a good rain, and then your pollution isn't as bad because it's, dropped, it's trapped all of it in the raindrop
1: yeah um but really the high speed videos that these guys did are worth checking out
0: oh they are they're super neat to watch it you know actually just generate this huge amount of stuff depending on what it falls on right and then get swept away in whatever wind you have that's it's you can really imagine smelling it when you're watching the videos i I, at least i could you know (laughs)
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's worth reading. And uh, you guys should find your own fun papers and make sure to tweet them or put them on Facebook or something uh, with hashtag fun paper Friday to let us know what you're reading today.
0: Absolutely. Um, This is always the cool part of science, right, is branching out into other sciences that aren't necessarily your own. And as we have talked about before, maybe giving you ideas outside of your own realm of expertise.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, it turns out we're not the only ones that started doing this.
0: Um, Really, John? I thought we came up with this. (laughs) You're telling me somebody else (laughs) came up with this before us?
1: (laughs) Lots of people have come up with this before us. Fine. (laughs) the Library of Congress has been digitizing some of Carl Sagan's papers that they've got.
0: I like where we're going. Okay. What did Uh Carl Sagan have to say about this?
1: (laughs) Well, they have a notebook page of his that we'll link in so you guys can take a look at it. The top of the page, he wrote, Outside Readings, Autumn Quarter, 1954.
0: Oh, that is super cool. So outside of cosmology and physics, right, that's what he's talking about. To make himself a better scientist, I'm guessing. What What were some of them that he thought would help him?
1: Oh, there's, there's everything on here. There are some books on astronomy and kind of things that you would expect, but... Uh, the Republic by Plato. Uh, the Bible.
0: <laughs> the Bible. Oh, that's, the Bible. Al- that's excellent. Okay.
1: Um, let's see. Julius Caesar Shakespeare.
0: Wow. Wow. And I see um, Young Archimedes by Aldous Huxley as well on mm-hmm. this list. Um, that's really cool. I think that's a good thing to do to try to step out of well, probably your comfort zone, too, right? I think probably a lot of scientists aren't necessarily comfortable once you start to talk about things like the Bible, right?
1: Yeah, and really, even just classic literature, a lot of times as a scientist, you look at it, and it's confusing.
0: Uh, Yeah, I know you're a big fan of nonfiction, John, and you've got a you know, I keep trying to get you to read some of these fiction papers, too, or fiction books, too, <laughs> explore outside of your comfort zone as well. So it's, it's kind of neat to see, you know, this revered scientist like Carl Sagan understanding the advantage in reaching outside of just cosmology to make himself a better scientist.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I did read uh, a fiction book recently that I really enjoyed.
0: <laughs> you did? What was it? <laughs>
1: It was The Martian by Andy Weir.
0: Oh, of course it was (laughs) sci-fi. Yes, but
1: everybody's talked about this on every possible podcast. They're going to make it into a movie. Uh, But if you haven't read it, you should check it out.
0: Awesome. Yep, I will do that because I'm a big fiction fan, so I'll write that down.
1: Yeah, and for everybody listening, next week we're going to have a special surprise.
0: Uh, I'm very excited about this. We'll see how... How good my technology does. Um, What are we going to do next week, John?
1: Next week, we are going to have Nick Holshue on, and he is an Antarctic field geophysicist. He's a student, and he just got back from the field and is going to bring us some tales of doing geophysics in harsh environments.
0: (gasps) I've always wanted to go to Antarctica, so I can't wait to talk to Nick about this. Um, There's a lot of science that goes on down there, obviously. It's basically a continent that is... That is only occupied by scientists and cute little penguins, right? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Basically. (laughs) So we're excited to have Nick on and talk to him, so be sure to tune in for that. But until then, Shannon, where can they get a hold of us?
0: Well, they can find us on the web at don'tpanicgeocast.com or also on the Twitter sphere at don'tpanicgeo. We're on Facebook now, and you can also go old school and email us. And you can email us at show at don'tpanicgeocast.com.
1: Right. You can find me on the web at Johnrlehman.com or on Twitter. I'm at geo underscore Lehman. Shannon is at Shannon Doolin. Until next week, take care and don't panic.
0: It's not an exact science.
1: Any opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this show are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. But until then, Shannon, where can they get a hold of us?
0: I don't know. (laughs) 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 That's why I always throw that to you, man.